Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. We're continuing our conversation with Raven Hickson. Raven is a behavioral neuroscientist. She's just finishing her PhD. She's been studying social play behavior in a rat model of neurodevelopment disorder. In part one, Raven described to us what that means. Raven comes from an applied animal background. Her bachelor's degree is in animal science from Cornell. Her focus was on neurobiology and behavior and psychology courses. She interned over two summers as a zookeeper at the Cleveland Zoo, which is how she learned about husbandry training and the idea of species-appropriate enrichment. After graduating from Cornell, she spent time working in zoos and as a high school animal science teacher, and then as a manager of a small boarding barn before she moved to Scotland in 2017 for a master's in applied animal behavior and animal welfare at the University of Edinburgh. Her master's dissertation led directly into her PhD project, which is focused on social play behavior in rat models of neurodevelopment disorder, where she's been paying particular attention to refining methods to improve welfare. She has two Icelandics who live at home with her, and she's been attending both in-person clinics and now the online clinics with me. In part one, we asked Raven to describe the research that she's been involved in. What does a rat model of neurodevelopment disorder really mean? And she shared with us some of the developmental deficits that are seen in rats when individuals don't play. That took us to the importance of bringing play into our training. But what actually is play? How do you define it? At the end of part one, she was sharing with us five criteria that can be used to recognize play. These come from a book by Gordon Burkhardt called The Genesis of Animal Play. The first criteria was the behavior does not appear to be immediately functional or to fulfill survival needs. We stopped at that point and left the other four criteria for this conversation. So we're now going to find out what those other four criteria are. So what were the four other criteria? Another one is that the behavior is rewarding and it's performed voluntarily. And of course, how do we know behavior is rewarding just by watching it being performed? Well, I guess this this leads to the next one, which is that it, it occurs repeatedly and usually with some variation. So it's not like a stereotype, but it's it's repeated. So, you know, it must be rewarding if they're choosing to do it again, mm-hmm. I suppose. <laughs> but also in rats and other animals, we do have some empirical evidence as well that reward circuitry is involved in play. Then also that the behavior differs in sequence, form, or context from the adult form of behavior. So... A lot of animals take behavior from their sexual behavior repertoire or from serious aggression, but they apply them in different ways in play. Mm-hmm, right. And then it occurs when the animal's relatively healthy and free from immediate threat. Mm-hmm. So that gets back to the idea that anxiety and fear sort of kill Shut play. Down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that was all of them. Yeah. Yeah, those sound familiar. So yeah, I think you've got the characteristics mm-hmm. of play. Yeah. The, the one thing that I was curious about with play and what you were getting at, Dominique, is when we're in, when we're clicker training and we are using food reinforcers, although I wouldn't say unless your horse is being food deprived or unless there's no other way to get, rein, like get food, I guess it, you, it's not really functional for survival. I mean, we're giving them a tiny tidbit at a time. So I guess um, but that that one gets like sticks for me. I'm like, are we sure it's play? Because there is like a consumatory aspect that that's giving them some kind of nourishment. So I don't know. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. 
I would say that the getting the treat, when you look at it in the whole context of the behavior and the training, that that gets folded into the whole activity being playful. Mm -hmm. You know, you click, you give the treat, you're, you're laughing, you're giggling, you're telling your horse he's the most clever thing on four legs. And then that all contributes to a playful mindset, a playful context, certainly on the part of the trainer. I mean, you can give food and be very serious. I click, I reach into my pocket, I don't smile. I just present the food where the perfect horse should be, and and there's nothing playful about it. Or well, you know, probably when Bob Bailey was training those pigeons to become weapons or guide the the the, the missiles, I doubt there was a lot of play in that. <laughs> I there was. You know what Bob describes. Bob Bailey, and some people won't know who we're talking about, but he was one of the early pioneers of this, we'll call it a technology of training. And when they were training large numbers of animals, it was, it was much more like a video game. You would have you know, a panel of six, 12 rats, uh, each in their, or rabbits, each in their little container, their training module. And you'd have one person on a console pushing buttons and, and having a, a treat delivered when the rabbit <laughs> did whatever the rabbit was supposed to do. There, oh, I couldn't yeah. be more impersonal. <laughs> you know, there, there was nothing playful about that type of training. So you can well, click a train and not be in a playful uh, state of mind. But yeah. I know that when I train my horses, it feels like play somehow. Okay, so tell us about I that. don't know what the difference is because I mean, Bob Bailey's using positive reinforcement and reward and so am I, but you know, I just, well, first of all, I do say I go play with my horses. And, you know, I think because I do a lot of Liberty work and I'm gonna ask you afterwards cause I'm sure it can be true when you write also, but I feel Liberty work makes it easy, easier to be in that playful mind state. You know, you, yeah. you set up games and sometimes they're very creative and crazy and, and you know, you giggle when, I don't see writing people giggling as much as I, or as, you know, I remember in your, in the last coaching session, you showed us a video of someone just running over, like she was doing kind of an agility um, course with her horse. She, they were both having a, a ball. The horse yeah. was having a ball. He, it yes. was clearly enjoying it really, you know? And it was not like, you know, sometimes you can ask a horse to go over a pole, they'll do it for the carrot, but clearly they're not, it's not their favorite thing. And I can tell you the things that Woody loves doing and the things he will do for a carrot. And they're not the same. So tell us, so give us a couple of Well, examples. for example, you know, Woody doesn't like going over poles a lot. He doesn't like it. He'll okay. do it. He'll do it if I ask him. And, you know, he'll be, he won't go away or anything like that. Uh, when I liberty launch him, he'll do it. But it's not his favorite thing to do. But, you know, if I ask him to disengage his hind leg, he can do that all day long. He loves doing that. <laughs> so, and I can tell because, you know, you were saying, Raven, repetition, he'll offer it, you know, willingly and again and again, whereas the things he doesn't like, and it's funny because people ask me that, you know, especially people who don't know horses, They'll ask you, how do you know he doesn't want to do it? And it's so clear to me, you know, that this is his favorite game. How do you know it's his favorite game? Well, it's, so how does he tell me? I think um, willingness to do it, the latency with which he does it, you know, the Paul, he'll do it, but he's slow at doing it. And he's, he won't, if we go in the arena, it's not the first place where he'll go. If he see because yeah, the poles yeah. are, are on the ground, he won't just go like, 
okay, can we go over the poles? Whereas in, in the case of this little horse that you, because I don't remember if he was doing weaving poles or if he was just going over bars. I, I don't remember exactly what it was. He was going over um, a, a grid of ground poles. Right, and he loved it. And he was, yeah. I mean, he was actually a mini horse, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. How do you know when your horse, and, and, and riding, how do you know if they're having a ball or not? You can feel it. You know, you're around, your legs are around the horse. You can feel their emotional state. It just comes, uh, it's so clear. You can feel the relaxation. You can feel the excitement. You can feel the, the pleasure, the let's do it again. You can also, oh, you're taking over to the mounting block. I'd say that's <laughs> a clear signal that you'd like us to stop right now. You know, you can feel all of those things. And we were talking about the Icelandics, and uh, one of the great joys was riding the two Icelandics as a pair. And they just, it was clear that they loved, they loved being, you know, right there together. And we'd laugh and we'd say, get your foot out of my stirrup. Because <laughs> we were so close together. And all four of us were clearly having a ball and laughing as we zoomed around. That was fun. So I think you absolutely can play when you are riding. But you have to remember that that's part of riding. Mm. And riding can absolutely get so serious because the learning curve for, especially if you start as an adult, the learning curve is a slow one. It's a steep one. There can often be a lot of Fear. Fear. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, like, when you start as a child and you've been sneaking out in the back pasture and climbing up on the ponies when your parents don't even know you were out of the house, kind of thing, and you and your siblings or uh, friends are getting on the horses and zooming around the pasture and laughing and so on, you, you have a playful experience with the horses and so in in that instance you would grow up you know having a uh, an understanding of riding which might be very different from the person who started riding in a lesson program and was in a line of horses where you're uh, everybody is told to trot and, and you're told to walk and and you're told what to do when to do it how to do it and there's no it's very hard to be playful. Yeah, and there's a culture too around how to manage fear. You know, I just had a very interesting discussion at my barn around that because someone had gone to a competition and it didn't go very well. Um, the horse was spooked all the time and, and the rider herself is someone who already at home is fearful of many, many things, you know? You know, she, she, there are all these conditions that need to be there when she's jumping or riding. And if those conditions are not there, both her and her horse get, you know, and sometimes there has been incidents. So, you know. So this does not sound like a person who should be going off property to ride in a competition. I know, but there's pressure, you know, from yep. Yep. who, from the exterior. And, yep. and so the solution that, you know, was proposed was to send this horse to a professional and do a lengthier competition so that the horse would get used to it yeah. while the rider will be staying home. And so when, and, and it's possible because I know that the trainer is a very um, highly regarded professional and he knows this horse very well. And so, you know, probably by the end of the competition, the horse will be much better than he was in the three-day competition because he'll be spending many months there. But, you know, I was saying to this person, well, you know, my way of approaching it would be rather to work the two of them because they are the pair. Um, yeah. You know, whatever the horse can do with the professional trainer doesn't 
make that much of a difference for actually the team, the writer, this writer. Yeah, mm. context matters. And so, you know, I, and, and this person never goes on a trail with her horse. And, and yet the, the property is gorgeous. They're beautiful trails, but it's just, you know, too much. You know, I'm thinking all the little steps, all the little things she could do with her horse where she could learn to, what's the word in English? Tame her own fear. That's not the word. Yes. Tame her own fear. And hers and her horses and the two of them together. So just go for 20 feet on the trail by hand and come back, you know? Well, you know, I know people who everything has to be absolutely perfect yeah. or they yeah before they can ride no dogs outside you know no has to be 70 degrees yeah no, no wind, wind. Um, yeah. people can't walk don't open the door while I'm yeah. in the arena which, which means that you know like there may be two days out of the entire year when all of those conditions are met and then they can't and then a car parks nearby and that's a different yeah. sound and the horse thinks I've never heard that car before yeah and even if they get those two perfect days they can't ride because they haven't been riding. Mm -hmm. And so they miss that opportunity. So instead, if you think, all right, I can work with my horse under these conditions. I can set up a circle of cones that is attached to my mounting block in the near end of my riding space. We'll call it an arena. Let's assume that you have some, you know, whether it's a paddock or an arena or you know something, but it's a, a safe place, close to the barn, horse feels comfortable, you feel comfortable, as long as it's a warm summer day, no wind, no delivery trucks, no dogs, etc. And you get on and you ride. And so you have this class of conditions under which you feel safe. And then the next day, you get on and you ride, and it's similar conditions. And then the day after that, it's overcast. It's cloudier than it was on the previous two days. But it's still warm, no dogs, no cars. And you get on and ride, and everything was safe. Well, you have now folded into your class of condition, into that, that class of conditions in which I feel that it's safe to ride. You've folded in overcast days. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, it's a little cooler. But the wind, but still calm, and you get on and you ride, and so you fold it into that class, uh, slightly cooler, and then maybe the following day there's a, it's a little rainy, but you still you get on and you ride and everything is fine. So gradually, those that class, those conditions that sit within that class of these are the conditions that must be present for me to feel safe to ride, expand, and. Pretty soon you can ride on in a much wider range of weather conditions. And then on some of those days, maybe there's a dog that is barking off in the distance or a delivery truck comes up the road, but it all stays safe. And so you gradually expand the conditions and then you move your, your cones a little further from the mounting block. And so now you are uh, beginning to set to break that umbilical cord to the near end of the arena. And then you move your cones a little further and a little further until gradually you and your horse are comfortable and confident in a wide range of conditions. The traditional horse world doesn't give riders permission to be afraid. No, that's right. And they don't give them time. It's like you have to face your fear and yes. the only way to do it is to go, I'm going to throw you in the deep end. There's no yep. other way. That's how you do it. Yep. And I know that for me at my age, there's no way <laughs> I'm adhering <laughs> to this, you know, philosophy for me gradually is the way to go. Yeah. And I'm not shy about it. I think it's very clever and, you know, I'm not getting a broken bone on this and I don't want to experience the fear because no, for me, nor should you? Yeah. Because for me, play to come back to our subject yeah. is a big part of it. If I'm not having fun because I'm scared, 
I have no interest. But that's me, yeah. right? When I'm looking at this person, I'm thinking, and yet, you know, she loves to write. She's always at the barn. She really loves it. So she's pretty resilient girl, I think, you know, but yeah. she will only have, you know, the writing in those conditions. And who really wants her to compete? Is it her or is it, you know, peer pressure? I have no idea because I haven't had this discussion with her and I'm not going to. But, you know, the motivation for people in the writing world are so different. So different. Yeah. That's right. But there, there's so much that conventional writing lessons hammers out of us. Well, I think a lot of people quit because of it. Yes, yes. And I, you know, I hear, well, I get a lot of people at clinics, dog trainers, who in, when, in their introductions, they'll say, you know, I, I, I love horses. I rode as a child, but I couldn't take the people mm -hmm. yelled at. I couldn't take the lessons. And so I left horses. And I, I work with dogs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, how many people has the, that really punitive approach to teaching frightened away from this great relationship that we can have with our horses? You know, it's almost like fear is a taboo. You don't say you're afraid. It is. You know, don't say you're it afraid. Is. You're going to look like a fool. You know. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because this is a plug for something that's going to be happening a long time from now because we're recording this in October of 2022, but the March Clicker Expo presentation, this is what I'm going to be talking about. Oh, really? Yeah. I think it's a great topic because oh. it is a taboo. It is. No one says they're afraid, yeah. especially in the traditional. I think there's a little bit more room in our clicker training community because we are allowed to take things gradually and we, you know, yeah. you keep saying yeah. safety comes first. And, but even in the traditional world, when they say safety, they will say safety is important. It doesn't come first. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And you know, the first thing they say, if you are on the ground, you go back, climb back up on that horse. And that's how yeah. you make sure that you're going to continue riding. That's not true. And don't get no. off the horse. Mm -hmm. You know, if you get off the horse, he'll know that he's won. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really amazing how much we are, you know, that, that you are just supposed to put a brave face on it and get on with it, even if you are shaking in your boots. Yeah. And, and so, of course, we get really serious. And, yeah. and, when, and as soon as you get really serious, and, and then somebody comes along and says, you know, send that horse forward smack him harder whatever you can access those solutions those are not playful solutions no they're not but they're easy mm -hmm. to access they're easy to access from a place of fear and so one of those one of the things that gives our horses some protection is if you remain in a playful state and because you have really guarded your horse experiences, your training experiences, and said, you know, I am, I'm not in it to win ribbons, and I'm not in it to push myself through these fear barriers, that I'm, I'm in it to have fun with my horses, and to enjoy the time that I spend with my horses, and to have them enjoy the time that they spend with me, that you've maintained a playful approach to training what do you think raven yeah no i was i was just thinking that that mindset kind of pushes us up against a wall because we're not allowed to accept any variation on what we've asked for and so then what's the option if we've asked for it and we're not allowed to accept any variation it's like it squeezes us i feel like i i just have this mental image of being just like squeezed against a wall and reacting to it and there's no play in that because you don't have any room whereas when you take the approach that's not goal oriented but it's just sort of more I guess process oriented you can I guess I think you make room you can be looking for some response but there's definitely room for variation 
and, and, and that's where we get sort of, that's how we're able to shape behaviors because we get different variations of them. And then our learners will offer us different variations because they haven't been punished for varying from, from whatever we've, yeah. So I think that's a little bit what also makes it playful because I think play is really about trying out different variations of things. So if you just carbon copy over and over again, I don't know that that's putting in a playful mindset. But as soon as you do something and then you think to yourself, I wonder what would happen if I did it this way. And then you try that and then you go, oh, maybe I'll try this way. And I think that's sometimes what the horses are getting to do or a lot of the time. And they're not getting punished. They're getting reinforced. And I think it gives us a lot more freedom that we don't have to get like, I don't know, we don't have to feel strict because we have options. If the variation that we just got wasn't the one that we wanted, we could we can do something differently, but we don't have to insist like, no, I've said you're going to do this or I've just keep and now you're going to respond one way and only one way. You think about how important that is for a horse like Sputnik who has the, the stifle issues. And when you were teaching him to pick up his feet, for example. Mm. And I gave you the approach to teaching uh, uh, him to lift his feet using the um, body part targeting. Yes. And that you had to remain flexible with him because you're up against a physical issue. And if you get too rigid, he can't do it. Yeah. You know, he'll, he'll, just, he'll just say, I'm out of here can't do it don't want to do it it's too hard yeah well for him he wouldn't say I'm out of here he'd say I'm gonna bite you (laughs) to express my displeasure at this (laughs) don't ask me to do that anymore Mm. yeah 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 definitely that's pretty clear and I think it's really great because that's what gives us the ability to okay you can't lift it that way but maybe if you keep trying you're going to find a way that you can do it well and I think that's kind of what's happened I think he's definitely like he's he's on the way to or he's figured out some solutions for himself that he can do it and now he quite likes to lift up his legs he really he I mean he offers it actually which is pretty amazing because I would never have imagined this horse with his feet stuck to the ground offering to pick up his feet, but he does. He'll be like, oh, what are we going to do today? I know, mom, before you ask me to do anything here, why don't you look at my foot? (laughs) Or, well, I'll pick up (laughs) my foot. (laughs) Don't hold on to it for very long. Don't do too much, but (laughs) here, I'll pick it up for you anyway, which I think is really cool. So then that becomes, that has the potential then of going into that bucket that is, that we would call a play behavior. You have just expanded his repertoire to create play behaviors for him. Yeah, I definitely think. And I was thinking this goes back to a while ago when we were talking about about like, how do you know that how can you recognize that something's starting to become playful? And I think for that, I think sometimes it's just like because and you were saying you can feel it when you're riding like his, his whole body is engaged and like expressing it's he's expressing something like. He's, he's not just lifting up his leg to just, I don't know how to describe it. doesn't sound right. I, he's not just lifting up his leg. He's lifting up his leg. <laughs> yes. And I, I get that. Well, I think, I think too, the way the trainer feels, I remember once hearing about a trainer working with a horse and it broke my heart because what I had heard was that Every night when she went home, she was crying about training this horse. So this means she was asking this horse to do things he was not doing. She had to force this horse. And it was really hard for her to do that because somehow must have been in contradiction with her deeper values. But she was doing it. And she was crying every night. Can you imagine? So to a lesser degree, I think how the trainer, how you feel, can tell you a lot too about whether this is playful or not playful. Yeah. Yeah. I also think sometimes, for me, sometimes I think I get myself into a more playful mood by talking to my horses while we're 
doing things and I'll just like be I you know the cute my voice isn't I I don't even know if I use voice cues probably I do but they're in sort of a conversational way and mm-hmm. I realize that if I go into a training session and I'm not in a very playful mood like I'm not smiling for example but then if I start to talk or be like oh thank you for your leg or you know just like talking like that then all of a sudden I can feel myself smile and then I can feel like more relaxed sometimes yeah when you go in it or like even I don't know like maybe if you're tense or whatever you don't you don't you don't necessarily feel like you're being strict but your face is kind of strict or maybe your body language is strict but as soon as you start to like I don't know for me that's a sometimes if I feel like oh you know I I could be a bit lighter in the if I start to like talk, talk like that it it can really like shift things I don't know why I think whether it's playful or something else but I think talking in full sentences makes a difference because you know when you're when you're saying single words you, you could you know sit down stay kind of thing but oh could you move your hindquarters over I need to get by (laughs) thank you you start talking in sentences I think that that's I don't know whether I want to call it just being polite being playful what I would want to call it but I think it's important yeah and also yeah I say to my animals like excuse me I don't I don't just like if he's if they're standing in front of a gate or something, or if my cats are in my way, I don't, I don't say to them like move or like, I don't even use, I do have a cue back, but I, I normally say like, can you back up or excuse me? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, it can probably look all kinds of different ways because I've also known some very young physical athletic writers who were having lots of fun doing things that would scare the hell out of me. Um, and they were having fun, you know, for them, it was that, you know, some it's for me, it's something completely different. But yeah. those younger athletic physical athletes would never have said they were afraid. They wouldn't say it. They would be ashamed of it. Right. Whereas I am not a very physical person. I'm, you know, I'm in a good, um, I'm an active person, but you know, I'm not a, I'm not an athletic kind of person, and I'm not ashamed to say that I'm afraid. And sometimes I look at myself on videos, and I'm a pretty nervous person. You know, sometimes I'm training my horses, and it's not even them. It's a, it's a noise I hear. And it'll, yeah. it'll startle me and I can see it on the video and I'm like, oh, I wasn't very relaxed, was I? But I can be like that when I'm alone in my house too. You know, I'll be startled by a little noise. Um, so so I guess, you know, we, we see a lot of people maybe in our community that are older, not only, yeah. but we see a lot of older women in our community. And I think there's a reason for it. Because I think a lot of these the, these women w- were not a good fit for that very strict face your fear kind of a culture, and they and they needed yeah. something. And even you know when I learned to train dogs, it takes physical force when you have a big dog to correct it with a, a leash pop. No. I don't have yeah. that kind. I don't have that in, in me. And I don't have that kind of because, you know, I, I remember one time I, I, I met a, a guy and his dog was pretty good at walking on leash. And at that time, I was very new to all of this. And I had a dog that was pulling on the leash. And he said, you know, I've spent years in an arena, hours per night leash correcting my dog can you imagine it takes force to do that for two hours I can't even imagine what it does to the horse's neck uh, the the dog's neck so this kind of you know I for me one of the things I liked was well I'm going to use my brain because I'm not a very physical person I'm going to use my heart but I'm also going to use my brain and this is why I wanted to become more knowledgeable because I am not a very physical person and I don't want my training to be physical. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't mean that, and I love to see 
when there are young people that are physical adopting clicker training, because I'm thinking, wow, this is going to look really interesting. But I know for me, it was an open door to a whole life that I wouldn't have had because if the thing was face your fear and get back on that horse, it doesn't matter if you break your leg. Well, it does to me. <laughs> and I don't <laughs> like I don't like fear. And so I do like strategic, gradual, uh, gradual strate strategies to learn to cope with my fear and have my yeah. horse in me as a team cope. And I don't care what someone else can do with my horse. And say, well, look, that's right. Look what he can do. Mm. I want to do it myself with my horse, you know. And furthermore, it's great if you can say, all right, yes, I can send my horse off to a trainer, and six months, a year from now, I'll get a well-trained horse back. Well, first of all, you have to be able to afford mm. that. Not everybody can. You have to have access to a, a good trainer who actually is going to return a horse that is better trained. You hear all the horror stories of, I sent my horse off to a trainer and he came back ruined. Absolutely, you hear that, absolutely. Yeah, so it's not a, a solution that's, a, that's available to all that many people. And I know when I'm working horses in clinics and so on, that I have to be really mindful of how far into a lesson I take the horse because I don't want to go so far that I disconnect the horse mm. from the handler, mm. which is easy to do. When, you, when you're a horse and handler team comes in, the horse has gotten used to their person. They know, okay, my person trips over their own two feet, is really clumsy, has an enormous amount of tension in their shoulders, never breathes when they're around me. So anytime they're holding the lead, it's really uncomfortable. But, you know, the horse has adapted. He's blocked it out. He's come desensitized, insensitive to the heaviness of the handler in the same way that the handler is, has, is not aware of how heavy the horse is. So they've sort of adjusted to one another, like, a, you know, an old married couple. <laughs> they've adjusted to one another. And then I come along and I start tying down the lead rope and I shift the horse's balance and I get him rocking back so he's not hanging on my forehand and I'm releasing in reasonable timing and, and he's going, oh, this is, this is quite nice. And then I hand him back to his person who hasn't mm. changed and the horse is going, oh, <laughs> example, non-example. <laughs> I didn't have another uh, example. Maybe I'll go with her now. <laughs> well, that's not what, you know, that's not what we want. We want to keep the horse connected to the person. So I might take a horse and work him up to a certain point, but only to get to make it easier for the handler to access and communicate and connect with the horse through a lesson not to work the horse so far that I've suddenly now made the horse so light that the person doesn't know how to cope. So, you know, I can easily see that if you're going to send a horse off for training, you have to send the horse off long enough that the training is really confirmed. So that, you know, uh, for example, with my horses, when uh, if I were to let somebody explore the lateral flexions with them. They know the lateral flexions so solidly. Like I could let people work peregrine in hand and no matter what they did, they could not disturb his lateral flexions because he just was so confirmed in them. He owned them, he liked them. But if, I, if they worked him say early on when he was first learning them, then it would have been very disruptive for him. So, you know, it's I mean, sending a horse off for training. It's not always an option, which means that we have to come up with training methods that allow us to stay connected with our horses and deal with the fear, both the fear that's in us, the fear that's in the horse, and come out the other side 
in a happy, playful relationship. Yeah. And and just thinking about sending your horse away to be trained, I feel like when they came back, what you would be working with is like a black box situation. Like possibly, yes. you know, you're, I, don't, I, I have no idea how this works. I've never had a horse like trained and then handed back to me, but I imagine you're taught like a set of cues or something that, okay, now this is, but I, but I feel like you would be really, I would feel so blind, like, okay, but what if I don't get this response? And then where do I, where do I go? <laughs> because yeah. like you always say, like the cues, the cues come out of the training process. So where do I go from here? Yeah. I would, I think I would feel extremely lost by that. But that's the revolving door syndrome that sits in the horse world where we develop dependencies upon a trainer. So the trainer trains the horse, hands the horse back to the owner. The owner is allowed to work with their horse for a little bit. The training starts to fall apart. And so then the horse goes back to the trainer to be fixed, which brings us to that wonderful principle of you can't ask for something and expect to get it on a consistent basis unless you have mm. gone through a teaching process to teach yeah. it to your horse that at some point you have to go through that teaching process so that you know what he knows and you know that, that yeah. the, the other the other thing is we know that when you have a behavior and in this case it's spooky behaviors um, that are happening when these two are together we know that even if new behaviors are learned if you put the animal back into the same context the old behavior will come back absolutely we know this principle we've you know jesus has taught yeah. us this so many times and has given us so many examples so she's a cue for nervous behavior in the part of the horse yeah she's the old context and the old behavior yep. will come back with the old context yeah. Good for the trainer. He made lots of money. He looks really good and he's gotten all these new behaviors. But if the context doesn't change at the other end, yeah. we'll have regression. What were you about to say, Raven? This is a, a curiosity for me about play. Actually, the context bringing, bringing back old behaviors kind of an idea because, and also with the constructional training idea, I've been pondering this and I would love to know what you think. So when, if play is, in some way preparing an animal for later. And one of the key components of play behavior is that it's performed sort of out of context of the real thing. Mm. What I really find fascinating that the, these behavior patterns, responses or whatever could be learned and rehearsed and practiced in one context in play and then spontaneously appear in the, their serious context. Mm -hmm. There must either, so I think that's really, really interesting. And I think we see that in the constructional training as well, because when you talk about things that pop out, it's because they've, you've taught yeah. different components, but they're always in different contexts. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden, at some point, the learner goes, oh, I could combine these things. And it's not always because the context is is the same as what they've been learned. And I just think that's really fascinating. And I think it might be related. I don't know. I don't know if it's unique to, to playful situations or I, I don't know. <laughs> it's a curiosity. That's interesting. Yeah. And are we then also carrying into that more serious performance context are we then carrying forward all those wonderful emotional states that exist in the play that are so useful to us? Well, probably not. If you're in a real fight, <laughs> you're going to well, use... We're not in a fight. No, but I mean, if, if the animal learned, you know, all these like your Icelandics who are fighting, play fighting and never biting or there's never a mark on each no. other, but if they were in a real fight, there would be marks and there would be bites and they certainly wouldn't have that same emotional um, 
No, but I'm thinking in terms of the training of what Raven was just describing, that, you know, from that constructional training perspective, mm -hmm. where we are looking at small component behaviors and we're teaching it, and we're teaching it in a context where it's very safe, you're very relaxed, you're not invoking uh, any fear responses, you're just having a good time learning these component pieces. Mm -hmm. And then as they are repeated and as they become more confirmed, that suddenly you get this popping out of, an, of another layer where the learner has just put two ideas together and, and given you a, a lateral flexion, mm -hmm. and there you are giggling. And that maybe the, the, the emotional state in which those component pieces were learned is carried forward so that going forward into the more serious performance is this whole feeling of it being playful and fun. So it, it doesn't go into the, I'm practicing my scales in preparation for performing in the orchestra, but that you're really playing. It's an interesting way of thinking about it. Play is definitely, I think, an important part of the clicker training. And I know for some people, it's hard to reach because of their life experiences. You know, they've had a lot of the, a lot of play sort of knocked out of them. Yeah. And, and they're still able, they're still able to be very successful with their horses. They, they bring other things, other qualities into the training. A great heart, an enormous amount of love and caring. And they bring that into the training and they are enormously successful. But when I think of some of the teams that really make me smile, what you see is that joy, the, the joyfulness mm. that comes with play. I know for me, when I see something very technical, without the play, the joyfulness, or the without the, the heart, I guess, um, but to keep it more factual, it's only very technical. And there's a lot of stress involved. I don't like it. I prefer mm -hmm. something much more simple with no stress than something brilliant with a lot of stress. I think some of our horses may also have had plays knocked out of them as well. Mm, yeah. yeah. It makes me wonder also, like, how can you bring that back? Or can you bring it back? How do you do that? Well, I think, you know, depending on how badly it was, I think it can come back. I mean, Alex, I'm sure you've seen a lot of shutdown horses come back with clicker training. Yeah. I mean, possibly there are cases that are so severe that maybe those are less hopeful, but I think it can, you know, come back. I've, I, yeah. I know I've seen a lot of shutdown horses come back and, you know, when, when you're told all your life that your voice doesn't count, you stop talking. But if someone mm -hmm. comes along and they say, I'll listen to you and you realize with time that they really do, that you can trust mm -hmm. them, that they are listening, yeah. that they are taking your, mm -hmm. your, yeah. what you're saying into account. I think you can, there's, there's, you, you can come back. Of course, if, if you start to have a horse that's, that begins to talk again and you punish them, that mm. is over. Yeah. yeah. It's maybe like, you know, starting a fire and when you have this little tiny ember, it's so easy to put it out mm. or, you know, or you can fan it and protect it. Maybe it's a bit, something like that. Yeah. And that, that's why, the foundation lessons are set up the way that they're set up and that they're and they're so important and this whole starting with protective contact is so important because I think we do see these horses that have been so shut down and have not used their voice and then all of a sudden they just light up you know that whole Helen Keller mm -hmm. moment and they light up and they become enthusiastic and they're coming up to the front of their stall and greeting the person going you're here wonderful and then the person is going oh um, <laughs> I don't like this you know I'm not used to enthusiastic horses and 
So we, you know, we want to really be so protective of that, that sparkle as it comes back. And one of the functions of the protective contact and the function of those six foundation lessons is to provide a safe structure for people to get used to horses that are expressing themselves where their personality expresses. You know, Alex, we talked about this on the podcast, but it was a long time ago. So possibly a lot of people may not have heard this, but what happens too is when you give their, their voice back to the horses, some of those horses, you may not like what you're going to hear in That's the right. beginning because you know <laughs> they have some, <laughs> they're mad and they have, they're afraid and they have some, you know, they, they're going to tell you because they know now that you're not going to punish them. And so if you're asking for something that they cannot do, they may, you know, they may respond in a way that you're not going to like in the beginning. And, and yeah. so <laughs> some people, sometimes it gets worse before it gets better, before you start teaching them more safer responses before they can know that, okay, I'm not going to push you. You know, you can tell me and I'm in another way, in a more appropriate way. You don't have to buck me off if you want to say no, <laughs> yes. but that's the thing. Sometimes people don't expect it. It sounds very romantic to say, you know, from now on, I'm going to take you into account. I'm going to hear your voice. I'm going to receive what you have to tell me, but sometimes it doesn't look so good in the beginning. Yeah. So you have to be aware that the fact that you're not punishing some of those behaviors will be coming out and you have to teach your horse how to express themselves, whatever it is, in a more appropriate way. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thank goodness that they don't speak English or French because they'd be swearing at us. <laughs> but the protective contact's very mm -hmm. important too in those yes. in those moments That's because right. during that transition phase, you, you need right. to, to stay and safe. And you don't you can't predict that you know this this really nice quiet horse may just be a really nice, quiet, well mannered, easygoing horse, or maybe a really shut down yeah. horse. And when you remove the threat of punishment. You're going to see just this horrific flare up of anger, really, and behavior that is very unsafe to be around. And thank goodness for protective contact. And thank goodness for that understanding. And that, you know, this is not forever. This is not forevermore. This is not the horse. This is just right now, you're seeing what has been swept under the carpet, what's been suppressed by punishment. And you're going to build a completely new repertoire. And this is going to go mm -hmm. well. Just take a deep breath and find a place where you can get a yes answer. Toss some food in the bucket, walk away, go have a cup of tea. And just to add another layer to that, the reason why the horse all of a sudden, who seemed to be so well-mannered and now is not so well-mannered, is not because of the carrot. No. The carrot is not making the horse uh, behaving badly that's right like you said it's all the history before it's you know suppressing unwanted behavior so if you if you've decided that this is not how you're going to do it from now on there are you know it's certainly a way to your well-mannered horse not using the punishment but you know don't let anyone tell you that it's because you started feeding the horse that he is now like this you're revealing the past mm -hmm you are revealing the past and you're in a in an extinction process basically you removed the threat of punishment and now you're seeing what was being suppressed by that punishment and the horse notices of course yes, Ooh, yes. yes. i'm not being slapped in the face anymore <laughs> yeah. yeah so you take a deep breath and you remain playful <laughs> yeah which is a lot easier if you have protective contact if your horse is yes. bringing their teeth your way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> play, absolutely. play is very difficult to maintain under those circumstances. Yeah. But um, yeah, I just wanted to say on that note that Lofter, um, my older horse, he is just learning that he has a voice, I think. And I think he is one of these just 
really well-mannered, like, calm, easygoing guys. Like, I don't see that there's a lot of anger he has that he's not expressing or anything, but he has learned his voice to um, ask us to give him some extra hay <laughs> because we've been giving them hay in slow feeder nets, and so they have hay for all day, but he really just prefers he would like to just have his hay loose if he could. And so when Sputnik is otherwise engaged, he'll come over to me or my partner and he'll walk to the stable where we keep the hay and he'll stand and expectantly wait, <laughs> which I think is the best way for him to use his voice. Love it. He's like, oh, I'm glad you're here. I'm ready for my extra meal. He's, he eats out of the slow feeders fine and he's getting enough food, but he just really likes to take us over there and get us to do something for him. I think he, yeah, he's using his voice for that a lot, which I think is really cute. I love all these places where the horses show us through their behavior that they are really clearly talking. Mm. They, they know that, that we're listening. It's very mm. satisfying. Yeah. And we had so many other things in your intro. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we did. <laughs> yeah, well, I know you, you said you work at the Equin Research Park. I wanted to well, hear more about that. I did when I was at Cornell. What is that? Yeah. What is that park? What do they do there? That's basically where they house their subjects that they use in different equine studies. But honestly, I wasn't in the research side. I was just in the husbandry side. So, okay. so the most I had to do with any sort of experimental protocol was giving them maybe one type of hay over a different type of hay. So I can't really speak to a okay. lot of what actually experimentally went on there or goes on there. Although I do know that that is where um, the first horse whose genome was sequenced lives or lived. I don't know if he's still there. But yeah, other, other than that, I can't really speak to, to much else that was going on experimentally. But the reason that it, it made me think about applying what I was seeing in zoos, which was basically like pretty clever management strategies and, you know, supplying species appropriate enrichment and things like that was because we used to go around in the morning and take grain to all of the horses who were outside. They were housed just in like in big paddocks and they had buckets that were hanging on the fences. And every morning we would drive a truck around and drop some grain into each bucket. But that usually caused a, a lot of chaos. <laughs> yes. Fight. Yeah, because the horses were sort of I mean, of course, we have more buckets than horses, but yeah, but still. And I just remember thinking, doing that, I, I, I thought to myself, there must be a way that we could train all of these horses to go to a specific bucket or, you know, there must be a way to do this. There must be a way to apply less some stress. kind of, yeah, some kind of management system that mm. was a bit different. That was my, that was my first inkling, like, hmm we could do this differently mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah did you see any herd uh feeding in the zoos that you you, you think could have been applied oh actually I don't remember how we fed them <laughs> I don't I don't <laughs> think I ever came up with an answer to that specific question <laughs> but yeah the thing that I think is very cool in zoos is just how much thought is put into where the animals will be where the, the keeper will be how will we move the animal from A to B because it generally does not require you to physically move them. The animals move themselves. And those were things that I thought were really would be really valuable. Because at the also at the Equine Annex I was I was taking I was cleaning the stalls of the um the stud stallions. So I would but every day I would go and walk them from their stall to their turnout and then clean the stalls and then sometimes back. So I just remember feeling like, surely there must be a different way <laughs> than always every morning having to walk these guys out. And yeah, the horse world is very ingrained in the tradition. You know, it's, yeah. it's like you see all these innovative things going on in, in the animal world, but you know, the way it was done 500 years ago is the yeah. way we're going to do it in the horse world. Yeah. And we certainly encountered that at the retirement farm. And, and Dominique, that's when you set up the sending the stallions out 
at Liberty through shoots mm -hmm. to their paddock oh, because yeah, that's so cool. When they were coming straight from the show, the show yeah. and you have these really fit horses that are used to a lot of physical activity and and the and I had all the green grooms because all the experienced grooms were on tour. Yeah. So I had all the local green grooms and they'd never seen a stallion in their life. So I wasn't going to take that risk. So yeah, yeah. we So that you know, to ask this groom who has limited horse experience mm -hmm. to lead this vibrant mm -hmm. stallion out to turnout before the horse knows how to mm -hmm. do it. It's just it's just crazy. So, so you set up an environment that whole arranged the environment for success. It was beautiful to look at actually when they came yeah. out on their own like that. In this, yeah. even in the winter, it was gorgeous to look at them. And so everybody was safe. It was easy. It was not no stress. Yeah, yeah. and they right. would go and one then by one when they came back in after they'd had their turnout and they're more relaxed. Then you do the mm -hmm. training that teaches them how to walk out with a groom, yeah. but you don't expect it right from the beginning. And this is one of the things that I know we encounter in the training where people will say, you know, they'll have a horse that they're really struggling with. And I say, but I, I have to be able to pick out his feet or I have to be able to groom him. I have to be able, it's like, really? This horse can't be dirty for a couple of weeks? You know, while you, while you put the training in that is going to allow you to have a lifelong relationship that is just glorious. He can't, he doesn't need his, his feet picked out right now, today, every day. He's living out, you know, he's, he's not standing around in, in a manure. Hopefully. He's out rolling, hopefully. <laughs> he's, you know, so he, so he goes out and rolls and gets dirty. Sometimes in the fall, it can get pretty muddy and disgusting and yeah. people may feel pressure to Clean yeah, the feet. But especially if they're barefoot, they, they shed the dirt pretty yeah, well. Yeah, but if they're you know, shooed, so it's, like, it's, it's, yeah. It's people may feel so. more pressure to do. Right, but there's still mm. this, this idea of, you know, you don't really have to do all of those things today. Mm. You know, you're, you're, it's okay if uh, your horse is a little dirty for a little bit while you put the training in. It's okay if you do groundwork until you and your horse are ready to ride. All of those things, it's okay. And I think that was one of the things that you really demo beautifully with, with the stallions who were going into retirement and where they had to learn to be handled. And we had lots of them. <laughs> yeah. It was just like, yeah. so would have been, you know, like with, with the team there, you know, having to take out, let's say on the whole herd, maybe we had on 60 horses, maybe we had 20 stallions. I mean, taking 20 stallions in the morning, if you're, you have unexperienced team could be a nightmare every day, could be dangerous yeah. for mm. both the horses and the team. So, I mean, that gives motivation. And it must have saved you so much time. Yeah, it didn't take much time because we would just have to open the door of the oh, stall and yeah. just you know, change the, um, the, the, gate. the gates and the, the um, come on, like the, um, where the chute went to. Yeah, the, the, the wires or I don't know, like, I don't know. Yeah. So, so it was pretty simple to do. Yeah. And as you say, it was fun to watch. Yeah, it was fun to watch because they're gorgeous <laughs> when they're, you know, yeah. beautiful stallion running is a beautiful yeah. picture. So there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be learned when we start looking at around I mean, we can learn from rats being tickled <laughs> we can learn from what they're doing in zoos you know there's a lot to be learned in all different directions and i i feel as though we've just scratched the surface but we've been talking for quite a long time so i suspect since you're over in scotland that it's getting quite late mm -hmm. for you so we should probably say a huge thank you for spending the, the afternoon with us or in your case the evening with us and it was, it's been a really interesting conversation. We haven't talked about play enough. And so it's a good opportunity to do so. So I thank you immensely. Thank you, Raven. Thank you so much. That was really fun. Thank you for listening. I love that we brought play front and center in our conversation with Raven. 
For me, being playful, being creative, and being kind are three strands that are woven together. These strands build a strong safety net under our horses. My best training occurs when I play with ideas as I play with my horses, and I love the relationship that evolves when all these elements are woven together. I mentioned last time that in 2016, I wrote a book called Joyful Horses that celebrates the importance of play in our training. I think of the book as a gift to you from my horses, so I published it in my blog rather than going down a more traditional publishing route. Joyful Horses is spelled with two L's to emphasize horses that are full of joy, and Playful is written in the same way, so it refers to training that is filled with play. If you want to read the book, visit my blog at theclickercenterblog.com. At the top, you'll see a tab that will take you directly to Joyful Horses. Next time, you'll meet one of our Joyful Horses as we shift gears yet again in a conversation about riding. And in the meantime, train well and have fun with your horses. <laughs>